Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Today, my guest is Barbara Oakley. Barbara has a PhD in systems engineering from Oakland University, where she is also a distinguished professor. She is a best-selling author with several published books about learning, including Uncommon Sense Teaching, Learn Like a Pro, and A Mind for Numbers. She is co-author of the massively open online course, Learning How to Learn, which is one of the most popular online courses in the world. We spoke with Barbara looking for insights into the art and science of learning. Inside today's episode, getting fooled by familiarity, procedural learning for performing in a high-stress environment, the critical role of sleep in the learning process, the problem with procrastination, and the power of active recall. Let's get curious and dive in. Welcome, Barbara. It's good to be here, Rob. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I'd like to start today with a, uh, a quote from your book, Uncommon Sense Teaching. And it, it goes like this. Teaching isn't a common sense job that just anyone can do. Effective teaching requires counterintuitive insights and an understanding of some of the fantastic complexities of the human brain. That quote, I thought, says a lot about why I wanted to bring you on the show today, because our audience has people that are uh, have the responsibility to train and instruct, and it isn't always common sense and the best way to do that. And so today I'd like to dig into some of that, some of those uh, um, counterintuitive insights with your expertise. And with that, I'd like to ask you... Um, what does it mean to be fooled by familiarity? Oh, gosh. So I'm, yeah, I've spent years studying how you learn effectively. And I can look at a book or watch a video and I go, I got this. You, I, if I try to remember this, the key ideas here tomorrow, I've got them nailed. And and then I asked myself the next day, what were those key ideas? And I can't remember them. So I, I'm an expert in these things, and even I can fool myself. So it, these are called illusions of competence in learning. And everybody's got them. You think you're studying in the most effective way. And oftentimes, it's not what research is showing is truly the most effective. So what I like to try to do is disseminate some of the great findings from psychologists like Jeff Picky and um, uh, 
so many wonderful researchers about how to learn effectively. I wish I'd known them when I was younger, but at the very least, we can share those ideas to help people save them that, that wasted effort in studying via ineffective mechanisms. I've certainly experienced that myself. Um, that, that sense of, as I'm reading something or studying something, the confidence of like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. It's here. I've got it. And then, um, to find only that I didn't have it nearly as, as good as I did or as I thought I did. So if it's, if it's, um, counterintuitive, some of these, some of these techniques of learning are counterintuitive. Is this stuff being taught in the school system? Are we learning how to learn as we come up as a student? Most students never have a course on how to learn effectively. And this is, we're talking 12 to 16 years of education. We're stuffing all this um, learning into people's brains, but we're not giving them the tools they need to be able to assimilate that information more effectively. The World Economic Forum has begun to realize this, and one of the top 10 skills that they project as being of supernal importance for 2025 is that you learn how to learn effectively. So they're going to be starting to look at whether countries are teaching their students how to learn effectively. And and I can't think of um, anything that could make a bigger impact on students through the rest of their life than just saving them that time and effort of sort of spinning their wheels because they're using ineffective methods. I remember when I was, so I hated math and science growing up. Uh, I only decided to switch after I enlisted in the army and went through um, and got out when I was 26 years old and decided to change from becoming, from being a translator, which is what I had been trained to be, to becoming an engineer. And I remember looking at my physics textbook and saying, I'm not going to turn this page until I understand what's on this page. And over an hour later, when I turned the page accidentally, I happened to see there was the solution. And I just thought, why am I not being, why, why aren't they teaching us how to learn effectively? I'm wasting all this time that I don't, I, I shouldn't have to be wasting. And we've reached a point where we understand enough about learning that we can really communicate these effective techniques on a mass scale. And I think that's why Terry Sanowski's in my course, Learning How to Learn, is one of the most popular courses, online courses in the world. Yeah, that's how I initially found your work. I took that course and, and uh, really enjoyed that. It was eye-opening to me to get some really practical, um, easy to implement, but not intuitive skills to, to help uh, retain information. It got me excited again about learning because it really felt like I, I felt empowered. Like, you know, it's, uh, this can be fun. It's always, it's kind of a game, you know, in improving your process and becoming more efficient. You talked about not wait, not wanting to waste our effort. And I, I can certainly think our, our listeners can relate to that. And that there's a lot to accomplish in, in a limited amount of time. And the thought of, um, instructing 
to a group of students, say new recruits in a recruit school, and um, to think that a lot of what is being instructed is lost if it's taught ineffectively. If there's a better way to teach that under, that's done with the understanding of how people learn, I think we can be more effective in the time given us. That is exactly right. And yeah. part of what we're learning are things like um, the different pathways that we integrate information into our brain. And some of mm-hmm. those pathways go through the basal ganglia. This has to do with our learning of motor skill kind of things, but also some aspects of mental skills. And so when we know how to help people master those those new skills, physical skills, those are just as difficult to master in many ways than the difficult mental skills. So learning more about how to teach effectively can be super helpful. Yeah, I want to get into that with you here in a moment. I want to start with... Um, talked about not wasting time, but also let's talk about not wasting effort. Um, why is it, uh, why simply just not, why, why is it just trying harder isn't always the answer? I, I read in your book where um, sometimes the best thing to do is to step away from a problem or to step away from a new difficult thing that you're learning. And that was completely counterintuitive to me. My, my, uh, personality or my, my strategy was to focus harder. Can you get into a little bit about the different ways that we learn and why effort isn't always the best path or effort? So there's, when we learn anything, we are making physical connections between neurons in long-term memory. So by physical, I mean that they're, that, that the, synaptic connections are strengthening. So, um, for example, if I might learn um, how to make a certain motion, if I'm making, if I'm giving an injection, or I'm learning how, how to say a certain word in Spanish, I am, through practice, reinforcing some of those connections between neurons And when it gets to be a nice, strong set of connections, I can pull those thoughts easily to my conscious mind and and just think, oh, I want to give that injection or I want to say that word in in, in Spanish. And it will easily come to you because you've got this, it's like this necklace that you've created. You can easily pull the whole necklace to mind. So practice is really important. In in strengthening those those links of long term memory, but what's also important to realize is that you don't just do it over and over and over again four million times. I mean, sure, it, it can help to just say "pato" is duck in Spanish if you say it a bunch of times. But what you want to do is you want to interleave. In other words, if you've got a certain skill, what other things are you doing? Uh, let's say you're, you're making a free throw. You don't just stand there and make a free throw. You, you want to interleave it with different sorts of motions and things you're doing on the basketball court. Uh, if you're learning a mental skill, like how to speak in Spanish, which is partly physical, 
you, because you're pronouncing certain words, you want to interleave. So you're, you're learning present tense as you're saying a verb, past tense, future tense. And you want to practice pulling up all those different configurations rather rapidly in a row, because it's not just that one verb conjugation. It's your ability to flexibly grab the right conjugation at the right time. Sometimes I will say things like, oh, you know, let's, we'll give another example. So let's say you're calculating perimeter, volume, and area. And you're trying to make those calculations. You don't just do 10 problems of perimeter and then 10 problems of volume and so forth. You mix them up so you know which tool to pull up at the appropriate time. If you don't do this, it's like learning how to use a hammer and you you can pound in any nail and then someone gives you a screw and you start pounding it in with your hammer because you're so used to pounding things in with a hammer. So you want to interleave whatever you're learning. Uh, especially anything that's easily confusable. You try and alternate those kinds of ideas and practice pulling them from your own mind. Don't look at a, uh, a paper and say, yeah, I've got that, I, because your mind will trick you. See if you can go for a walk. And pull out the key ideas that you're trying to learn from your own mind. See if you can do it more rapidly. Because a lot of times skills, whether mental or physical, are like learning to sing a song. You would never sing a song one time and say, oh, see, I've got this. I'm a really good singer. You sing it a number of times to really get it so it flows out when you need it. And especially when you're working at a, a job that is, um, that's dangerous, that you've got to think fast. You want to be able to pull these ideas instantly you know, to mind as you need to. And the best way to do that is to be imagining, pulling them in your mind uh, so you really grease those skids, uh, lay those neural paths. What is what about when you're stuck on something? When you you're ha- you're trying to learn something that's very difficult for you, whether it it's a it's a, something cognitively you're trying to learn, you're trying to incorporate new knowledge, understand a problem, or even a physical skill. You're struggling with a physical skill. Is there value in going and doing something else for a little while? Absolutely. And this circles back to the question that you raised earlier, which is, why is focusing all the time not the total answer when it comes to learning? And part of it is, when your mind is making those connections, as you're learning something, you're making those neural connections, sometimes the best way to really reinforce the connections that you're trying to make is to not be focusing on it. When you are not focusing, when your working memory, your conscious mind is not focusing, that gives your hippocampus um, a chance to go forward and reinforce those things. As long as you're focusing, it can't be reinforcing and building and strengthening. 
So when you think you're just mind wandering and not doing anything productive, your brain in the background, especially if you front loaded it with something that you're really trying to learn, is actually working in the background. We've made the mistake for for many hundreds of years, actually, of thinking that the only time you really learn is when you're focusing. But focusing mixed with a bit of relaxation is actually key because that relaxed period, especially if you are not focusing on anything, like you're not focusing on your cell phone and responding to some text, but rather sipping a cup of coffee or or maybe listening to a bit of music or something. That's a time when you are, your hippocampus can be reinforcing those links of learning. I've had that experience, like uh, reading a difficult passage in a book that I'm just struggling with. I can't, I can't get it. And coming back to that same book the next day, and it makes sense. Totally. And I did not give that any credit. I, I didn't know how to explain that. I, I just, I didn't know how to explain it. But your, your book helped me understand that there's actually value in walking away sometimes that that the learning learning's occurring not only when you're focused on something but once you've focused and kind of primed the pump you've kind of you've done some thinking about it it's in there and just because you're you can go for a walk you can go to the gym you can turn to a different subject there's still things happening on that topic and that that was amazing to me Oh, yes. It it still makes me laugh because that book, A Mind for Numbers, uh, I remember when Penguin Random House, people often don't know that as an author, you're not allowed to pick the name of your book. You can suggest one and they may go along with you, but they may not. So Penguin Random House picked the name A Mind for Numbers for the book. And I just thought, Wow. This book is going to go nowhere fast because that's the most boring name for a book, especially a book that's really generally about about learning, not just numbers. And I mean, to the shock of my publisher, not to mention me, it's sold over a million copies worldwide. It's really popular. And I think it's because it gives these counterintuitive, I mean, I'm not some psychology professor who's sort of... Oh, yeah, this is how you learn in uh, when you're learning something really difficult, like, uh, I don't know, a physical skill or how to uh, learn um, derivatives and integrals and foreign languages and so forth. A lot of times learning in certain disciplines can be, frankly, easier and you need different techniques than when you're learning in you know, hard sciences. And so I think people really appreciate someone who's walked the walk. And I mean, who knew? Uh, here's this kid that flunked math all the way through high school. And now I'm a distinguished professor of engineering. So I, I, I walked the walk. And I, I like helping people to see the brilliant insights from researchers that can help them to also I think it can be comforting for people when they're struggling with something um, and can maybe help be more patient with yourself to understand that uh, it's going to take some time. It's it, sometimes learning difficult things takes time and having to step away isn't doesn't mean that you've stopped. It's part of your learning process. 
And and that is so important to realize. And also to realize that if you are a slower learner, like me, that's perfectly okay. Some people are race car learners. Some people like me are like hikers. But think about the difference between a race car and a hiker. A race car, everything goes by in a blur. They get there really fast. Hiker gets there way slower, but they can reach out, touch the leaves on the trees, smell the pine in the air, hear the birds. Completely different experience and in some ways much richer and deeper. So because I learned slower, I, I generally, even when I was in college, I took fewer courses than many of my fellow engineering students. But I ended up excelling uh, because despite my slow way of learning, which incidentally, some Nobel Prize winners have uh, discussed how their slow way of learning allowed them to see errors in, um, in theories that the fast learners would just jump right over. So I love my, my hero in science is Santiago Ramon y Cajal, uh, who was really a slow learner, but he won the Nobel Prize and now is considered the father of modern neuroscience. And Cajal said, uh, you know, they asked him, how'd you do it? And he said, I was no genius, but I have worked with many geniuses. And the problem with the geniuses is that they can jump to conclusions, and when they're wrong, they can't correct and change their thinking. So if you are no genius, rejoice, because you can sometimes do things even geniuses can. We've talked, mentioned about uh, learning skills versus um, maybe cognitive learning. Can you talk a little bit different or talk a little bit more about what it's like or the how are learning in the cognitive domain similar or different from learning skills in the psychomotor domain? So, as I, uh, so there's two major pathways that the brain uses to lay le- neural links in long-term memory. So it doesn't, so I'm going to say the names, but you don't need to remember these kinds of things. You just need to remember that there's two pathways. One is more for cognitive kinds of skills. That's called the declarative pathway by neuroscientists. It goes through the hippocampus. Um, Then there's the procedural pathway, and that that goes through the basal ganglia. Don't confuse the word procedural with following a set of procedures, because that's completely different than the procedural pathway. Following a set of procedures is like declarative. So, um, but anyway, so let's just call them the hippocampal pathway and the basal ganglia pathway. That basal ganglia pathway is important for motor skill learning, and this kind of learning, it all you think, well, it's just for habits, and it is, but it's also how you learn the complex patterns of your native language. It's how you learn. You know, not only motor skills, but also things like how do you solve a Rubik's Cube? It's doing things um, repeatedly so that it you know how to do them. Like, for example, you know how to tie your shoes, but try explaining it to someone else. And this kind of learning is is incredibly important. It's been, unfortunately dismissed by educators over the last 40 years or so as um, it's just drill and kill kind of learning. 
But now we're beginning to understand that this is the, the procedural basal ganglia learning is the best way for us to learn things so we don't even have to think about it. We can just do it quickly when we need to, especially if it's like a really stressful circumstance. So for many for kind of motor skill kinds of things, practicing in an interleaved way um, so that you, you're, you're trying this skill, you're trying another related skill, switching back and forth, um, can, and doing it enough times that you just don't even have to think about it is, is the best way to learn. I can always tell people who, for example, have done a lot of blood draws because they could do it without even, they, you could blindfold them. They could probably find your vein blindfolded and they, they're just like, boop, boop. It's all super easy. And that kind of skill, ha- unfortunately, has been dismissed by a lot of educational approaches that dismiss the value of rote practice and repetition. Well, let's, let's talk about active learning, because I think we're kind of describing some of those um, techniques of active learning, interleaving being one of them. Can you can you kind of elaborate on what active learning is so, versus passive? One way to think about it, sort of really roughly, is that when someone explains something to you, that is that direct hippocampal declarativeness. But when you practice it yourself. So, for example, let's say you're, you yourself are trying to solve a problem or to implement a procedure, a physical procedure that you've learned. That often uses that basal ganglia procedural pathway. So, um, it's you know, there, there are two different um, ways of learning. And active learning is often sort of synonymous with doing something yourself. And it can be partly declarative, but it's also, it can be that sort of practical um, forming, doing something enough that it's forming habitually. What I mean by this is whenever you're learning something, you, as an adult, you're usually laying a set of links through that hippocampal declarative pathway. But when you do it enough times, that, that, that set of links gets duplicated in the procedural pathway. And these procedural pathway links help you to be super fast with it and to do it without thinking about it. So that's why you can learn declaratively a vocabulary list in Spanish or whatever language you're learning. And then you actually meet a person who's a native speaker and your mouth just gapes and you don't know what to say. And it's really hard, even though you have memorized that vocabulary list. It's because you haven't practiced enough in an interleaved way to also lay that parallel set of of basal ganglia uh, links. And those basal ganglia links are what allow you to do it really quickly without thinking about it. So even if you're learning a foreign language as an adult, 
If you practice a lot and you're talking with native speakers, that naturally is going to interleave your learning. And gradually, you'll begin to see that you lay, you have laid those parallel links and you can start speaking yourself more intuitively and quickly, which is what you need to do when you're speaking a language. I think of, um, of the need for repetition and interleaving. Yeah, I think it's important to, to uh, understand how normal forgetting is. Forgetting is the is the normal state. It's it's um, and I think it relates to what we were talking about initially about how important it is to remember that um, forgetting is the normal state, and that there's this repetition that has to happen in order to um, make make those connections as strong as they need to be, and um, we don't always. We don't always do a good job of that. I think we we oftentimes will have kind of a one and done where a skill gets explained to you. You perform that skill and you perform it well in that moment. And then you might not touch that skill again for a long time, weeks, months. And so the importance of interleaving really becomes um, paramount, I think, because if you're putting yourself into a process of, of practicing your skills through interleaving, you are also kind of testing yourself. Does it come back? Does it come back easily? Can I, can I perform this on demand when, when, when I need to have this skill? Does that make sense? Oh, totally. So let's say that you have learned CPR and you don't use it for a couple of years. And then suddenly you're going along in a grocery store and you see a guy lying there on the aisle, you know, and if you haven't thought about those skills in the couple of years since you used the training, you're going to be slow at a time when skins count. So you, you kind of, when... When you read books about people who have, for example, survived really very dangerous events, it's often because they were very, they were always observant about what was going on around them. And they were even anticipating what could go wrong. Like, um, was it Sully who um, landed the plane when they lost all the engines because of a flock of geese? He would always be, what do you do in case of emergency? He had it fresh on his mind, even though he'd gone for, what, how many years? 25, 30 years without incident? But when it really mattered, he could pull it instantly to mind because he just did those kinds of ideas. One thing that's important is that forgetting is not necessarily the default state. Because there are a few people, it depends on your bath of neurochemicals. So, for example, those who are more on the autistic spectrum, they can have a bath of neurochemicals that make it so that when they see something, they can, it, those links that form, they, it's actually hard for them to break those links. So they can walk into a room, they can, they can spot one book out of place on a bookshelf 
And they have such a barrage of memories about everything. That one book out of place can really just throw them into, throw them off kilter. So we often wish for better memories, but the reality is having a really good memory can come with trade-offs. You can make those connections. You can see all the details. You can remember all the details, but you can't step back and see what's the forest doing. So sometimes those who seem to be slower learners and they forget and they have to relearn things can be at an advantage because they, um, because they forget, it allows them to prune away those details and see what the big picture actually is and remember and keep to that, which can be invaluable in all sorts of situations. And what about um, active recall and spaced repetition? Can you speak a little bit about those? Since we're talking about forgetting, I mean, that's, that's part of the solution, isn't it, to uh, improving memory? I'm so glad you brought that up because I think those are probably the most important ideas in learning that are that often students simply don't know about. I didn't know that just rereading a textbook, you know, I thought that was the way you did it and you underlined things. I know a physician, uh, however, and he exemplifies this new and different way of learning. He went through medical school, rarely attended classes, just learned by reading the textbook and creating his own flashcards. So he tried to make it a rule to never reread. Instead, he would just be revisiting his flashcards. And he graduated number one in his medical school class. So uh, that's, his name is David Handel. He's the founder of I Do Recall, which is one of my favorite flashcard mechanisms. But there are many, many good flashcard systems out there. So using these kinds of systems can be really, really helpful in, in your learning. I just didn't know that retrieval practice and spaced repetition, in other words, retrieving an idea from my own memory as opposed to from the page and then doing this over a period of several days, what happens, especially during sleep, is when you sleep at night, If here's a good trick. Do your regular studying during the day, but in those two minutes or so right before you go to sleep, retrieve the key ideas you're trying to learn, remember, or understand. And this will signal your brain as it's sweeping with these waves throughout sleep or through some of the sleep periods. It will reinforce the links that you have just kind of signaled are really important. So it will help you so that when you wake up in the morning, you can learn, remember, or understand what you're trying to work on um, much more clearly. You've mentioned a couple of times stress and being able to recall uh, skills or knowledge under stressful conditions. How does stress affect the learning of new information and skills? So the input side of the equation, while you're learning something, 
what is the impact of stress on the learning process? And then maybe a little bit more too about recalling those, that knowledge or skills under um, stressful conditions. Can we just dig a little bit deeper into that? So one, one problem is that many educators for the last couple of decades have been like, stress is always bad. We want to do whatever we can to minimize stress. Well, no, that's not true. A little stress can enhance your ability to learn. And you know that. If you're a little bit stressed, you're studying for a test, and those those neurotransmitters can, certain ones are enhanced by a bit of stress, and that can help cement those memories in more carefully. Now, if you have too little stress, you're bored and you, you can't really pay attention. Too much stress, incoming, you know, uh, you're in Ukraine and something is coming in, it, that also can't, it doesn't help with learning because it can kind of, I mean, it could momentarily enhance things, but in the long run, if you have that kind of stress, it, it, it's not healthy for your body. But a little bit of stress here and there can be beneficial. This is of something called hormesis, uh, which is referring to the idea that a little bit, for example, if you never get exposed to sunlight, you think, great, no stress for my skin, but it actually can be harmful for the body because that's how you generate a little bit of vitamin D and so forth. So a little bit of sunshine really can be beneficial. So, uh, and a lot of times they've found that minute amounts of certain stressors are beneficial for people. And that's why we exercise. I mean, heck, if we didn't exercise, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have any bodily stress but it sure wouldn't be healthy for us in the long run. So a little bit of stress can be uh, beneficial, and it can also uh, help enhance your ability to retrieve. Like, let's say that you are, um, for goodness sakes, let's hope not, but let's say you are under a really stressful condition. A fire is, is zipping towards you. You don't even want to think you want to be able to, you have so built in how you should properly react under that circumstance because you've done it so many times that you you just do it. And, uh, and that will really help keep you safe. So that's actually the procedural basal ganglia learning, habitual learning where you, and it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, um, Trainees learn in boot camp, for example. What do you do when a certain circumstance arises? Stop, drop, and roll, or whatever. Uh, that's um, if you learn to do it intuitively by practicing enough times. Then, when the stress of a real of something really bad going on around you, you do it, and you don't even think. Uh, about doing the right thing because it's just automatically a habit for you. So a little bit of stress, enough stress in the learning, on the learning side of things, when you're teaching skills is motivating, keeps people interested, keeps them challenged. 
it's it's helpful. And then we know that in the, in the fire um, profession that there are going to be times when you need to recall skills and you don't have time to think about it. It needs to be an automatic response. It needs to be able to be done in a stressful environment. So what are your thoughts about um, or what, how important is it to be teaching skills in an environment that is similar to the one in which those skills are going to have to be recalled? If you're going to be in a very time critical, high stakes um, performance arena, when those skills are called for in real life, is there a way or do you see it as being important to um, practice being under stress when you have to uh, perform? I think when you're first learning, you just want to learn however you can and maybe not maybe so stressful as you're first acquiring the skills. But then later, as you are becoming more familiar and more skilled, the more you can make it like a real circumstance, hopefully safe. I mean, there were so many plane crashes before they developed flight simulators. And flight simulators have saved so many lives because it's a way of really getting pretty close. I mean, even to the extent of, you know, you got to, it's, it's shaking and rocking and rolling and so forth in some of the simulators. It, 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 it can help you know what to do. For example, Apollo 13, when things started to go wrong um, as, you know, as they were hurtling towards Earth, they, they pretty much had built into them through practice a lot of emergency responses that helped say, keep them alive until the crew back on Earth can, could help them by figuring out how they could get oxygen uh, continued into the system. And then James Lovell, the, the you know, he, he was, and it's, it's almost hard to say what an extraordinary pilot he was. And his ability, he he just he did a seat of the pants navigation into the exact angle that they needed to be to hit the atmosphere and not burn up. And we're talking less than a degree of slew. If he got anything wrong, they were cooked. And yet, under these extremely stressful conditions, he just knew exactly what to do, kept his cool. And, uh, of course, live to tell the tale. Yeah, that's a great story. And it's a really good example of being able to perform at, with the highest stakes um, is so dependent upon not becoming overwhelmed by the stress and the, the potential um, danger, but to have done something so many times to have as much confidence in your skills and abilities and, and how important that repetition is. But then also the interleaving that you talked about, I think interleaving brings confidence because when you can distinguish the finer points of, of a skill or to be able to distinguish between two skills or to be able to distinguish between contexts of when I want to do this versus when I want to do this. And so coupling repetition with 
your interleaving of your experience, I think, is a method of developing that kind of confidence where you can trust that procedural process, the work of the, um, what did you say, the ganglia? Some ganglia, yes, exactly right. Yeah, so you can you can trust that and take the stress piece out of the equation as much as possible because of that repetition and the confidence that you've built over time. Yes, and I think this may somehow relate to, um, they'll often say, let's say that you are a um, an archer. So you're pointing you know, your arrow towards the target and the old meditative practices would often say be one with where you with the target don't be one with yourself focus out there and what what that does is that activates that basal ganglia system when you're thinking about yourself I'm nervous. I, I am I going to hit the target or something like that. Then that throws off your aim because you're you're getting away from that habitual action and getting more towards the conscious, you know, kind of being aware of what you're doing, and that throws you off your game. You when you're thinking outside yourself, you're actually often just using that basal ganglia to. Flow into what you need to be doing, and then that's how you can be most successful, in, especially when you're doing physical skills. Once you've established those pathways, how do you how do you know how much you need to do to maintain them over time? How much do they degrade, and what's the frequency of uh, returning to previously learned skills that's that's uh, required? That is a great question, and it's a hard question to answer because when you learned the skill will make a difference. Um, How much practice you've previously had will make a difference. So, for example, for me, I'm now uh, working on learning Spanish. Uh, When I was 18, I was at the Defense Language Institute studying Russian. And so the Russian, it will still come back even today. Oh, doggone it. I didn't mean to say that in Russian. And and even even my Chilean son-in-law, he will laugh at me sometimes and say, you speak Spanish with a Russian accent. And uh, um, so there's no one cut and dried rule for but you you can have a sense yourself of when something is beginning to sometimes what they'll say in research is right before you forget that's the best time to repeat something it's like well good luck with that how how do i know if i'm right about to forget things but you develop a bit of a feel yourself for how um, how frequently you want to go over things Sometimes, though, I think it's it's a bit more often than we think it is. So it's it's not a bad idea to revisit a fair bit, especially if it's a critical skill. Some things you're learning just because, let's say you're reading a book, you're trying to get a general sense of a field or an idea or a concept, and it's perfectly okay not to do a bunch of retrieval practice with something you're just trying to get a feel for. 
But anything that's critical for your job or that you really want to have down well, it's a good idea to to draw that back to mind. In fact, there were some concentration camp survivors who, while they were in the camp, they had no access to, for example, the piano, which they might have played very well beforehand. But they would practice mentally. And what they found was that allowed them to still um, keep their skills, even just practicing it mentally. Um, so it, it, I have two thoughts. One is as an individual, you can, you can um, practice active recall and bringing things back to mind and testing yourself essentially. But that there's an important role for that because it's kind of a, that self-evaluation can can familiarize yourself with with how you're doing. What, what have I forgotten? What do I need more work on? But as a training officer, where you have responsibilities for uh, departmental training across the organization, it seems to me that what you're saying would support some sort of evaluation process, an ongoing evaluation process worked into the training program so that as an organization, you can, you can get objective feedback as to how people are doing. You can identify areas of strength that maybe don't need as much um, repetition and spend that valuable time in areas where you're, you're seeing performance gaps, where you'd like to see a higher level of performance. That is such an insightful set of comments. The, sometimes you will hear that evaluation and testing is a bad idea, uh, and sometimes you hear that from um, professors who are singing a song that some teachers would prefer to hear. Uh, they, they some teachers, you know, you could understand they're they're very stressed out. They have a lot going on, and they would just as soon not be evaluated on how well they're teaching students. So you'll get this, you know. I, frankly, I think it's a sort of a propaganda that no um, testing is not important or it's bad or detrimental. But no, actually, it's the best way to ensure. I mean, if you are a competence-based group. Ensuring that you have competent people by checking is critical for for your day to day work. Yeah, in the fire service, the test is coming. It, it, we know it's coming. I mean, you don't know when it's mm-hmm. going to happen, but the the call is going to come. And uh, and and time. We've talked about time a couple of times. There, there's so much to learn in the fire service. So much to be to maintain skills that. Um, it's a it's a big challenge. It's a huge challenge. But knowing that the test is coming uh, when that nine one one call comes um, just underscores how I think how important it is to make sure that you are putting some sort of evaluation process. And it's not a punitive thing by any means. It's it's so that the organization can better serve the members and make sure that they're using the limited time, the limited resources and focusing those efforts where it will most benefit the members so that they can work on the skills that are, um, that they don't have the opportunity to practice as often. I could not agree more. And, and more than that, good evaluation mechanisms can give you a sense of where can we improve our training? You know, where where are you struggling that we, we, we could be doing a better job here? 
And so good evaluation systems, they, they, they give the implementers great feedback about how they can improve as well. We've talked, we've touched on sleep a couple of times. This is like a, something I really wanted to hit with you today um, because sleep is so important to the learning process and sleep or, or lack of it is a factor in the fire service. There's a number of schedules that, that uh, people work, but what they all have in common often is, is um, 24 hour shifts and going, you know, going um, sleep deprived a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And can you just speak a little bit to what the role of sleep is in the learning process and how important it is um, and how restorative it can be towards um, maintaining your knowledge base or, or keeping those skills accessible to you, how important it is that, to that process? So there's a lot of things that happen when you go to sleep that are super valuable for learning. For one thing, I had mentioned that it, uh, when you sleep, it's, it's actually, it's thrilling to watch some of these simulations of what they've discovered. You can see waves rolling around in the brain, just rolling right through. And those waves are reinforcing some links that you need more. They're, they're not reinforcing at all some that aren't important. And so sleep is really important because it, uh, it's, it's enhancing and strengthening some links. It's pruning away other links. So it's, um, it, it's helping you learn while you're sleeping. But it does something else that's, I mean, among many uh, restorative processes. When you go to sleep, your brain cells shrink. I mean, your neurons, often many neurons, interneurons, other, they shrink. And so as they shrink, it's kind of like a river where you had these big boulders, but suddenly the boulders got smaller. That allows the water to flow by more easily. And indeed, in the brain, when your brain cells shrink, it allows metabolic fluids to flow past those cells and it's sweeping away toxins. So it's cleaning your brain. You're doing house cleaning. Obviously, you can't do it very well when you're awake because you don't want those brain cells shrinking and doing that kind of business. So you do it when you're sleeping. But then when you're getting rid of the toxins, that's why when you wake up in the morning, you're often kind of refreshed. You're, you're better towards the beginning of the day more often than late at night or after a prolonged period where you haven't had this restorative sleep. So sleep is just, it's really important, but at the same time, some people have jobs where it just, it doesn't make sense for certain, for many reasons to, to have shorter periods so you want to do the best you can. If there are ways to take little naps, they found during World War II, for example, that uh, fighter pilots were shooting themselves out of the sky. And it's like, hey, wait a minute, this is, you're on my team. I shouldn't be shooting at you. And so they, they were horrified at what was going on. And it was due to the lack of, the sleep, of sleep on the part of the pilots. So they, they brought in... Uh, athletic coaches who were relaxation experts who 
taught about how to completely relax the body. You kind of go through, and there's various relaxation techniques that you can perform on yourself very quickly so that within two to three minutes with a little practice after thinking of a mental cue, you can put yourself into a short nap, you know, for you know, maybe you've got 45 minutes that you can rest a little bit. And they found that this this was really helpful for their pilots. So if there is the wherewithal to, to take little naps, those little naps can be helpful. I had a supervisor earlier in my career tell me, you don't get paid to sleep. And I I just couldn't have disagreed more. <laughs> we do. We do. It's part of it. When you put somebody at work for 24 hours, they are going to, they're getting, they're getting paid to be ready to respond. And I think it's really important to understand the role of sleep in being ready to respond. And so I, I just, I, it's related to the learning process. It's relating to be able to retain that information. And it's being, it's related to being able to effectively perform Mm-hmm. And it's important to realize how um, negatively impacted we are when we are sleep deprived and that we have a responsibility to to manage sleep as best we can. I mean, it's tough when you're on 24 hour shift. But as you as you mentioned, if there's an opportunity for a nap, even a small nap can be restorative. But then on your off time, too how important it is to respect your sleep and to have good sleep hygiene so that you are coming to work rested. Oh, that, that, now that's a great point because I mean, I understand what, where your former supervisor was coming from, but at the same time, my guess is if you gave him a totally sleep deprived doctor and said, okay, who do you want to diagnose you right now? Or who do you want me, who do you want doing surgery on you right now? He would probably have said, well, you know, maybe a little sleep is not that bad. So, but it, it is important, you know, because the temptation is always there when you get off work. It's like, oh, relax a little bit. I want to do something that's a little fun that I'm actually consciously aware of. But you do have these trade-offs, and so you want to really be mature in how you're handling this so that when you are on the job, you're you're giving the best you can. Yeah, pilots, it's managed, right? I mean, pilots are required to um, – they can put so many hours in the air, and then they're, they're grounded. They have to um, have certain many hours of rest. and. And I think truck drivers have something similar as well. So what about the, what about the, uh, what about somebody who spends a day, let's say at paramedic school, Uh, you're at paramedic lecture during the day and, um, you know, a three hour lecture and, and then you're up all night. You don't get sleep because you're back at work running calls all night. What's the, what is, what's the, uh, how does that lack of sleep affect the learning of that previous day? Oh, it's going to make it much tougher for that, that those insights and that new learning to cement itself into your long-term memory. So you put all the effort into learning something, but if you don't give your brain the wherewithal to consolidate and strengthen those connections, they can disappear 
Um, so I still remember once I was uh, giving a, a test in engineering probability theory, and one of my students came up to me, and he, he was really mad. He thrusts his test in my face, and it's all redlined. He, he'd failed it. And he says, I just, I don't understand how I could have flunked this test. I understood it when you said it in class. And I'm just like, you know, we've gotten so overboard that we think that, oh, if you just understand it when people say it, that that's enough. And it's not true. If you don't have it in long-term memory, it doesn't matter if you understood it at the time you learned it. It's just not there, and you're not going to be able to use it when you need it. That kind of ties into a couple of things we've talked about. One is being fooled by familiarity. Mm-hmm. And two is um, that your learning, your learning process continues even after you've stopped thinking about it. So sleep is a good example of that. You're you're sleeping and that's actually facilitating some important part of the learning process to cement that stuff that you were focused on earlier in the day. And we talked earlier about taking a break, um, turning away from a, a difficult problem, going for a run. Um, again, so just kind of reemphasizing the role of, of um, that well, I think in your book, you referred to two kinds of concentration, right? There's focus, which everybody's familiar with. We focus on a problem that we want to learn. And then there's the diffuse state, right? Where we're not necessarily thinking about something, but we are, there's things happening in the background that we're unconscious of. And sleep is a part of that. And then um, taking a break from from your learning is is also a part of that. Right. And, and things like, let's say you're just driving along and you're not in heavy traffic where you have to be focused, but you're just driving along a country road, there can be these consolidation processes that are occurring. Oh, you're riding on a, a bus. You're taking a shower. These are, uh, they, they sometimes say the bed, the bath, and the bus yeah, are the times where you can think creatively, or you don't even need to be thinking creatively, but your your brain is consolidating that new information, connecting it with other things in your mind. And you just can't do that as long as you're actually focusing. That's, I think, a problem for us today is that people have their cell phone with them all the time. And when they're in a line or something, they just pull out their cell phone. There's no more breaks of just where you just stand around and be bored. And mm-hmm. this is actually problematic because it, it makes it harder for your brain to reinforce those links of learning and also to just kind of think, oh, wait a minute, I just learned this, but that relates to this other problem that I have in a completely different area. You can't do that kind of create creative set of connections and so forth when you're always focusing on TikTok or something that is coming up online. Yeah, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's underappreciated that that the value of not being busy focused in on something, that there's value in going for a walk, um, being bored sometimes, letting things happen. If we don't even know about the diffuse state, if we don't even know that there's a valuable process occurring there, it's easy not to appreciate that and to just always be distracted. Those phones are very tempting, you know. There's always something to do. There's always something you can be looking at. 
One of my favorite books about that is by Cal Newport called Deep Work. Uh, and Cal Newport has done in digital minimalism. So he's, he's a really good thinker about these kinds of things. And neuroscience is just really, he doesn't cite that, but it is totally supportive of the approaches that he suggested. Yeah. Um, Learning is kind of a painful process. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Yeah. That uh, we're really learning something. It's there's a certain amount of discomfort that's involved. It's not it's not easy, and um, and I think maybe if it's if it's feeling easy, you got to ask yourself: Are you learning really learning, or are you fooling yourself with that familiarity idea? That's so true. I still remember I I was learning. My my parents really wanted me to be able to play the piano, so they got me a piano teacher. Learning the piano, and I discovered that if I just was playing a song, even if it was the same song over and over and over again, that my parents thought I was learning. So I just learned a song, and then I put my comic books up, and I just I could play the same song over and over again. And read my comic books. I was totally happy, but I was not obviously pushing myself in learning something new and harder. So I never really advanced very well in my piano playing. And there's something called that that Robert Bjork of UCLA calls um, deliberate practice, focusing on the harder things. And people will say, oh, no, wait a minute. We're supposed to get in a flow state. So it all is kind of flowing along easily. No, flow is for when you've already learned something and you know it so well that it all just flows out, like with Sully and his ability to land the plane. Um, it's when you're, when you're learning something that, that's hard, you're actually laying neural pathways and using metabolic processes that that are taxing, and and you even can release um, certain, uh, for example, GABA within certain parts of your brain that you are using to learn that new thing that you're learning. And that actually makes your brain tired. That's why if you're working on a certain skill or concept for a while, you get a little tired and you want to switch to a different subject just because the brain's getting tired. And that's that area of the brain. It's starting to look like at least research is showing you're, you're putting out these sort of toxic metabolites when you're really hard and they're not bad for you, you know, in the long term, you just, you remember a little bit of stress, just like exercise is healthy for you, but it's, it's not easy to learn new things that are difficult, but you want to be pushing yourself. If it's coming too easy, you, you may be, like taking the easy way out mentally. And we all do this. I, I do this. I'll look at it and say, I got this. I don't need to remember it. I don't need to close a book and see if I can retrieve it from my own mind because I know I've got it. And that's why sometimes it can be valuable. Let's say that you're learning how to do some rapid calculations. Don't just look at it 
at the answer and say, yeah, I got it in my mind. No, you put that book aside. You see if you can work it cold with a pen and, and paper yourself. Uh, and if you, if, you, if you have to peek at the answer the first couple times you do it, do that. But then like practice it enough that it flows like a song in your mind. So at first, that's really hard, but later it gets much easier. It, it's, it's this mental skill with um, concepts like mathematics and so forth is really quite similar to learning how to pronounce a word in a foreign language. The, the first time I said, I tried to say Zdrastitye, which is hello in Russian. It was really hard, my, 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 my tongue. And now I'm like, can't you say Zdrastitye? Uh, and, you know, it's so easy. But if you practice enough with whatever you're learning, it will become more and more easy. So um, I think that's important distinction because a lot of times we will shy away from things that make us uncomfortable. And part of the learning process, if you're uncomfortable, you're probably where you need to be. You're probably working at a good uh, level of depth. So that kind of is related to I want to talk a little bit with uh, to you about procrastination. Procrastination is kind of a natural response to uh, avoiding something that feels uncomfortable, something we don't want to be doing. Can you talk about um, the harms of procrastination and and um, and why it's uh, such an ineffective strategy when you're wanting to really learn something deeply? So people in the last few years have been coming out and saying, oh, you know, procrastination is not all that bad. It helps you to make sure that you've got all the key ideas. So if you're, for example, writing a report, you can have all the key ideas at your beck and call to put the report better now, uh, uh, together better. Of course, now with chat GPT, you can put things together better and more quickly. Uh, even so, it's uh, pretty amazing. But the, the reality is that new learning, when you're learning something new, that's a completely different process than writing a report about something. You are making neural connections in your own long-term memory. There's um, Sometimes they, they will call this the, the meathead syndrome. And that is, we look at athletes and we think, oh, well, learning, structuring neural tissue and, and growing our neural connections is really actually kind of analogous to what athletes are doing when they're creating their new muscular connections and growing those, uh, those, uh, mus those excitable tissues, which are the muscle, uh, uh, muscle cells. So mm -hmm. neural cells and muscle cells are really, they're both excitable tissues. And so they, they are analogous in needing time to develop. You didn't, you don't see some, huge weightlifter coming up the night before the world championship and saying, you know, I think I'm going to cram tonight. 
But you will often see people thinking, oh, I can cram if I'm just learning. But no, it takes time to make neural connections and de- develop those neural that neural architecture just as it takes time to develop a muscular architecture. Isn't it possible also to to, to have a very efficient um, hippocampus, I think is what you referred to, is that um, kind of a short-term memory where if you're cramming the night before you need to do something on a test or an evaluation, and you can be very effective in the short term and kind of fool yourself into thinking, I have this, right. but you haven't. And you might even succeed. You might do very well in the moment that later that day or the next day. But you haven't laid the groundwork for deep long term learning. But that 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 effort that that led to that that one success is likely to fade quickly and not be sustained over time. Is that correct? This is such an important point. In fact, one of the problems, one of the most frequent problems experienced by students who are starting at, say, MIT or Harvard or Stanford, is that these are often really fast learners. And they've relied on that hippocampal cramming ability to be able to be pretty good on tests, even if they're studying at the last minute. This can work when the subject matter is relatively easy. And when you're in high school, compared to what's going on in MIT at the freshman and junior, you know, sophomore level and so forth, it's a lot easier. So what happens is these bright students go to MIT. And then they suddenly discover they have no idea how to study in an effective way that's not cramming at the last minute, but that instead builds those connections so that they're good not only for this test, but for subsequent tests that semester and for other follow-on courses. And so it, it is... You know, it's a challenge for these very rapid learners who learn that cramming works really well to actually learn well for the long term. And so sometimes it can be a real struggle as they swivel around and gradually finally begin to learn good study techniques, which people like me, who I'm a slower learner, I have to really focus and spend time to learn things. But I've got good study skills because I know I have to. So in some sense, I'm, I'm better off than some of these real um, rapid-fire learners who go off and, uh, and then struggle because they don't know good study techniques. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about online learning. How might, how might online teaching be best utilized to support the optimal process for learning skills, procedural learning? So it, it, it does make me laugh sometimes because online learning gets a really unfair, bad rap. And I think it's mostly because a lot of instructors are very nervous about it. It's like, oh, it's my competitor. You can have world-class teachers out there teaching really well. I know one um, expert in massive open online courses, and I am not kidding you. I've seen him at online conferences 
spending half an hour talking to the camera with a picture of his book beside him for half an hour and just talking all about how online teaching is really a bad way to for students to learn. And I'm like, oh, yeah, guess what? If I taught this way, I would think that online teaching was really bad, too, because you're just not teaching. You're not taking advantage of the great ways that online teaching can be effective. And here's an example of how it can be. You might tell yourself, well, you can never really learn a physical sport or a procedure or anything like that online. You've got to have that careful, hands-on, in-person presence. Well, there's a fellow named Julius Ego who's from Kenya. And Julius always wanted to learn to throw the javelin. Well, Kenya is famous for its long-distance runners, not its javelin throwers. There were no javelin-throwing coaches in Kenya, and he couldn't afford to go overseas to study. So he began watching really good teachers of the javelin online. He would watch these great teachers, then he would go out and practice, watch and practice. And in this way, 98% of the time, he became the world champion in throwing the javelin. So this tells you that really good online teaching can be enormously effective and taking advantage. And I do have to say, so, uh, for example, if you go onto Coursera and you see we have a three-course specialization on effective teaching, it's called Uncommon Sense Teaching. And one of the courses is how to teach well online. And it's also about things like how do you motivate people when you're teaching online? As it turns out, you lose about 10 charisma points just going through the camera. So it gives you lots of clues. But there is, it's, it, it sometimes, I find it a little disheartening because in 2012, they call it the year of the massive open online course. We had a forewarning that, hey, you can start teaching online and people can really benefit from it. And universities and many you know, did their best to, oh, this is not good. Not, And then when COVID happened, people were not prepared. So, I mean, we've had the COVID warning. It's time to really take heed, as Singapore, for example, does. When they've had the SARS epidemic, they know that it's a good idea to have your population, you know, have at, at the beck and call some really good online teaching mechanisms. And so they weathered COVID quite well in Singapore. We're going to link to the Coursera course that you just referenced and encourage people to take a look at that. Um, but can you quickly kind of give us just a few, few uh, characteristics of high quality online learning? So a little bit of humor here and there. You don't have to be funny throughout. You don't have to be a comedian, but if you have like a little bit of humor every six eight minutes, something like that, students will be like rats pressing that lever to get to where the humor actually is. They will hook you with something that's intriguing, that makes you want to keep going. And what that does is that enhances that focus mode 
And it suppresses the mind wandering so that you're able to focus more effectively on what's going on. When, like in real life, let's say a rattlesnake was suddenly looming towards you, you would really focus. In fact, there's special circuits in the brain that when something looms and jumps towards you, uh, whether it's a mouse, a spider, or whatever, it activates these circuits that rivet your attention. So even if it's something innocuous, like if you watch good editing on videos, they will often have like it will jump forward. I, I look at some TikTok videos and I'm like, well, now that's masterful editing because that little jump forward activates the neural circuits of attention and keeps your focus riveted on what's going on. So great online teaching often takes advantage of these kinds of things. And sometimes you can find it, for example, you can find it in, in you know, the courses I do with my co-instructors. But there's great courses um, from naturally good teachers on YouTube. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's some really fantastic talent out there. And if you want to pick up some ideas yourself, look at our course that will give you some tips on creating great courses that people are really riveted and want to watch. But also, um, kind of, I remember the worst professor I ever had in my life. He was a nightmare. And he had just done this big, long derivation. And then he got to the end and realized he messed it up. And so he was trying to figure out what he'd done wrong. and. Some people in the front row were talking about television, you know, a television show. And, of course, I was busy as a student. I didn't have time to watch television. There was a little bit of snobbishness in there, too. I was like, I don't watch television. I often hear that from um, academics, and I just have to laugh sometimes. But uh, he, he heard them saying, talking about this television program and he whirls around, puts his arms across his chest and says, never watch television. And I thought, oh my word, I've got to start watching television because I never want to end up like this guy. And I swear that this kind of that little, that I grew informed what catches people's attention. How movement, how do they? And so I think it really has informed my own online course making. Um, we've covered a lot of ground and we've, we're going to give some resources to folks so that they can, if they want to dig deeper, that they can uh, have some good starting points. Do you have one single piece of actionable advice for somebody who maybe is listening today and all of this stuff is new? They're, they're kind of maybe they're having the experience that I did when I first took your course. It's like oh, kind of opening up a door. I'm like, wow, this is this is this is new information for me. What's a what's a single takeaway maybe for somebody that is new to all of these ideas if they're interested in applying one thing to their life to become a better learner? Well, I have to say retrieval practice is key. Seeing if you can pull information from your own mind. So I know you said one thing, but if I can build on that and just say, if you feel You're allowed like... allowed to go more than one. Okay. If you feel like an imposter, if you feel really uncomfortable you, and you're welcome to the club, it is 
It's valuable in learning to grow comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. So when I feel uncomfortable, it's like, this is really hard. I reframe it as, this is a good thing. I, I'm, uh, I'm uncomfortable. That means I'm learning. And that is a great way to help advance your learning and your own personal growth and change. I love that. I think that's, that's a, I'm glad you, I'm glad you uh, brought that up, that whole idea of imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. um, that if you're uncomfortable, you're probably in the right place. The cocky ones who think they've got it, those are the ones who have challenges in my class. Yeah. The ones who are yeah. really not sure they can actually do it, those are the ones who often do pretty well in the long run. Well, Barb, this has been great. I want to just close with my final question. And you're very accomplished um, in the in your uh, career as a engineer, but also all the great work that you've done as uh, in education and in the science, art and science of learning. Um, what are the benchmarks that you use to measure your own personal and or, and or professional success? What's most meaningful to you and how you measure success? Oh, that's a tough question because it's like success is multidimensional. So part of my success is my family's, you know, keeping, just keeping in mind that no matter how I am focusing on trying to make breakthroughs, help people be aware of these things, that I cannot um, be so completely focused that my family is left behind. At the same time, I have to admit that uh, I wouldn't be happy if I was completely focused only on family. So I think it's okay to have this balance uh, and try to watch that. For me, um, I suppose part of success is um, I love to write. I love to make online courses. I use them as sort of my personal benchmarks. Okay, I've got that. Got it written. Uh, I, I learn so much when I am writing something. Uh, I, I discover what I think about something by looking at the writing um, as I'm trying to piece it together. So I, I suppose those are my little subliminal benchmarks, but mostly I'm just trying to think you know, when I wake up in the morning, am I excited about what I'm doing today? And if I'm not, how can I make that so that I can still be, you know, really excited because then I know I'm on them. Well, I love that answer. I, that resonates with me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you again for being with us today. It was just a pleasure to have you here on the show and discuss this with you. And I hope that uh, our listeners will, will uh, follow up on some of the resources that are out there and, and follow your work because there's so much to take away from it. And I think it can really be beneficial for us. So thank you very much. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you for your great work. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take 10 seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. 
Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you in the next episode.